Let me invite you now to stand and join with me in turning in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And we'll be in verses 6 and 7, which is really the continuation of the sermon from last week. So if you are new here and you missed the sermon last week, you're welcome to go online on our website and listen to that sometime. But verses 6 and 7 really provide for us the hope that we see that Christ gifts us. In other words, how is this joy we talked about last week, how does it become ours? It becomes ours through a Savior who's talked about in Isaiah 9, and I'll read verses 6 and 7 to you. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. Lord, give us confidence, assurance, in the hope that you have given to us in the Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I had an unusual upbringing. Many different facets to that, and I'll highlight one of them. We were not allowed to eat eggs. It wasn't born of some kind of religious conviction or anything like that. It was because my dad was a cardiologist, and growing up in the 70s and 80s, what did eggs do? Oh, the plaque in your arteries and things like that. So we were not allowed to eat eggs. So you can imagine, oh, it wasn't eggs, butter, bacon. I could go on of the hardship (laughs) that I endured. Needless to say, when I went to college, it was game on. (laughs) Who has been depriving me? of the wonder of the egg, and so we like to eat eggs a lot and make hard-boiled eggs, and one of the ways I figured out, and Instapot is not sponsoring the sermon today, but I'll mention this to you. If you have an Instapot, these things are awesome. It's a pressure cooker. You put the eggs in there, you cook them with the heat and the pressure, and wonderful boiled eggs result, hard-boiled eggs result. So typically we'll cook our eggs this way, very easy. And every now and again, because of some imperfection on the shell, or if there's even a slight crack, the heat and the pressure of that pressure cooker will cause them to erupt and to crack further in the pot. And as we're thinking about hope today, and we're in a series on the simple gifts that we're given during this time of year, and hope is one of those gifts that we're given, and I want to define hope for you this way as we're discussing and talking about hope in the Savior. I want to define hope this way. It is the expectation of a beneficial future. We understand that. Hope 
is the expectation of a beneficial future. We understand that. But I want to add to that definition this. Hope is what holds you together. The world will crack you. The world will crack you. Some of you have had the fallenness of the world, however we experience it, crack you this year. Hope is what holds you together. So hope is the expectation of a beneficial future, but hope is what holds you together even when you are cracked. See, I don't want the heat or the pressure of this world or this culture to crack you, but you will be cracked. That's a reality of living in a fallen world. We will experience grief, pain, hardship. And the beautiful thing about knowing Jesus is that we can look full face into the difficulties and trials of this world and still have hope. We don't need to minimize how we are cracked, how we are pushed in on, how we are jars of clay carrying about this treasure of the gospel. We will be cracked, but hope is what holds you together. Hope is that when we are cracked, the glory of God in the gospel spills out. That's what hope is. And we're given hope here in the pages of Isaiah. And Isaiah is an extremely, can I say it? It's a negative book, if you have read the book of Isaiah, because it is the case of the prosecution. It is God's case against his people and how he is going to judge them. But there is this theme of hope that supersedes all that runs through the judgment that, we see, that we've seen here. So we're going to look at a description and the details of the hope that Christians have. And we're going to see that in verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9. And there's an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along. First thing I'm going to show you is we have a wonderful hope. A wonderful hope. Now by that I mean a hope that is full of wonder. Look with me in verse 6. We read this, first part of verse 6, for to us a child is born. That makes no sense. That the plan of God, that the way he is going to engineer the deliverance of his people, remember in verse 5, we've read about this age of peace that will come such that the implements of warfare, you see those in verse 5, are no longer necessary. How is this going to happen? For unto us a child is born? This makes no sense. What's a baby going to do? But we have a wonderful hope, a hope that is full of wonder and awe because the plan of God, the sovereign plan of God, showcases his eternal wisdom and power. The way he is going to deliver us, the way he is going to give us hope is through a child. This is a wonderful hope that we have, a hope that we have that we just stand back in awe of. And this hope comes through a child. Now this makes perfect sense to God. Makes perfect sense to God. 
In other words, his redemptive plan exactly follows what Paul would later write in Romans chapter 5, Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. Listen to this, Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass has led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Have you ever heard Christ called the second Adam? You see, Christ is the ultimate cosmic do-over. As we read there in Romans 5, 18 and 19, what has happened is sin has entered the world through Adam. So what was the way to rectify this? Send another man, Jesus Christ. He who is fully human. But he had to be fully divine to do that which Adam failed to do, which is to obey God perfectly. So our Savior, for unto us a child is born, we marvel at the wisdom and the power of God to redeem us with a plan that makes perfect logical sense. Just as sin entered the world through one Adam, our sin problem is dealt with through the second Adam. He who is fully human, fully divine, two distinct natures, in one person, co-equal, co-eternal with God, for unto us a child is born. The method here of the redemptive plan of God in sending Christ for us makes no mistake the wonder of His ways and the incredible power that He has. And so, this child rescues us, and it is for that reason that we are rescued by a child, for to us a child is born, showcases the awe and the worship we should have for God. Now, there's one other point to make here in this wonderful hope that we have. Look at the second phrase there in Isaiah 9, 6, to us a son is given. To us a son is given. Now, that's the passive voice of the verb, is given. And what this means is that you and I are passive in the process. We do not rescue ourselves. In other words, the Son, the child, is given to us, and this is emblematic of all our salvation that we do not earn our own way. And so this method of God winning salvation for us is a way that He communicates His greatness and the fact that we should be in awe. We should observe the nativity with a sense of wonder and awe in the greatness of God in sending the second Adam for us. It is a reason, it is a cause for our worship. However, there is a problem when we talk about, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Often, frequently, we don't think deeply or significantly enough we are too shallow in our thinking when it comes to God. What I'm advocating for here is the greatness of God's ways and the greatness of His ways in particular in the redemptive plan for sending a child and this motivating us to be in awe and worship of Him. 
However, many of us are content to live on a more shallow level. They did a study in 2015, get ready for this, on Google's effect on our memory. Google's effect on our memory. And this study that was published showed that possibly 90% of us suffer some sort of what they call digitally influenced amnesia. And what this means is that we have farmed out our memory to the internet. You want proof of this? They found 70% of people in this survey done in 2015 in this study, 70% of people didn't have their children's phone numbers memorized. Guilty. 50% didn't have their spouse's phone number memorized. Why is that? Well, it's simple. If you're not utilizing the information, your brain makes the calculation and says, I don't need to remember that anymore. If I can just push a button, I don't need to remember that anymore. And so we farm our memory out to the internets or to our devices. And the problem with that, what is the problem with that? When we come to God, we need to think the best, most significant, wonderful thoughts. I'm advocating here for a theology that we would have a theology that is equal to the magnificence of our God if it were possible. And we know of God that a problem is we have a superficiality in our thinking, that the internet trains us to be superficial thinkers. That's one of the reasons the world is in the mess that it's in. And one gentleman uh, named Nicholas Carr, in response to this study, he, had, he wrote a book called The Shallows, How the Internet is Changing the Way We Think, Read, and Remember. Nicholas Carr wrote The, Sh the Shallows. And he said this about the superficiality of thinking. And, and listen, if you don't think Christians think superficially, we need to re-examine what is taught and what is done in our modern evangelical churches. He wrote this, Nicholas Carr from The Shallows, quote, not just the cognitive side is affected in terms of superficiality, not just the cognitive side, but also the emotional side that not only reduces richness in one's own life and sense of self, Here's the important part, but if we assume that rich, deep thinking is essential to society, then it will have a detrimental effect on that over the long run. Do you catch what he's saying? He's saying deep thinking is essential to society. You know what I think deep thinking is more essential to? Walking with God. Walking with God. And so this digitally influenced shallowness that we're trained in, we need to move against that. And Christmas is our opportunity to think deep thoughts again, to think again of the wonder of the incarnation. For God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave. He gave his only begotten son. Isaiah 55, so... 
Later in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 55, what a chapter. Put that on your list to read. But verses 8 and 9, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. With the finite nature of the human mind, we cannot think, we cannot uh, think of the wonder of who God is and his wonderful plan for us. Going back to Isaiah 9, 6, you see now we have a marvelous, wonder-filled hope as Christians. How is it described? For to, uh, for to us, a child is born, the ultimate cosmic do-over, the second Adam. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. So not only do we have this wonder-filled hope, but we also have a royal hope, a royal hope. Now, the royalty of this hope is mentioned specifically in the second half of verse 7, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. This child is described as in the line of David. But go back to the second half of verse 6, because we read there, the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And the word government there, we should translate that dominion or rule. And what is being said here is something that makes no sense to our earthly minds. We're told that a child is born and the child will be capable enough that the government shall rest, the burden of rule shall rest on this child. He is that capable. It is child's play, this rule, this dominion for this Savior we have. And so the burden of rule shall be upon his shoulders. He will have dominion. Now this relates to verse 4. Last week I showed you verse 4, the three instruments of oppression, the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor will be broken. And that's going to be broken as on the day of Midian. I'm looking in verse 4. So when we go back to verse 6, we understand that this rule will accomplish the deliverance of God's people. They will be delivered. And not only will they be delivered, they will be delivered by this ruler who is able to bear up under the burden of leadership. And he is further described here. Not only will the government be upon his shoulder, he's given four names, and names, of course, are important in the Scripture as they speak about the nature of something. And his name shall be called, four names here, the first one, Wonderful Counselor. Now, that word wonderful relates back to the wonderful hope that we have, incredible contemplation of the greatness of who God is. So he is a wonderful counselor. The way that he leads is not something that our mind, our finite mind can grasp, but he leads in such a way, implementing his rule. So it can be described as he is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God, the mighty God. He is the one who is able by force, by force to accomplish this redemptive plan. He is a mighty God. Sometimes in Texas, because we are a people who value independence, I hear frequently people say, 
Uh, God wouldn't force himself on anyone. Ask the Apostle Paul, what did it feel like for him to be knocked off his horse? Was God not forcing his way, showcasing in a personal way that he is the mighty God? That no plan can thwart his redemption. He is the mighty God. He is also called third name descriptive here of the Savior, everlasting Father. This means that the rule, the dominion will last into eternity forever. And then he is called the Prince of Peace. In other words, his dominance of his rule and his reign will create a rule where he is known not for warfare, but for the establishment of peace because of his total victory. And then we're told in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Of peace there will be no end, we like that. But statistically speaking, about 75% of those in Kendall County do not support bigger government. So we're sort of at odds here, aren't we? Because it says right here, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. But we need to understand that word government needs to be translated for us dominion and rule. And what we're told here is that his dominion, his rule, his kingdom will continue to increase. And there will be nothing to thwart it or to stop it. I'm talking about 1986, Ronald Reagan's famous quote, nine most feared words in the English language. Do you remember this? I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So you may read, depending on your political persuasion, you may read of the increase of his government and you may say, no, I don't want increase. No, this is the rule and the reign your heart truly longs for that the increase of his government. What is this government depicted as? It is a peaceful kingdom where there is victory and there are no longer needed the implements of warfare. This is how increasing the government could be good because it is Christ's dominion, not ours. And through this one true ruler, we will experience... Look down in verse 7. Justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Let me tell you something that's important about hope. Hope, which I defined earlier as the expectation, future expectation of a beneficial outcome, if the object of your hope is as it should be, then your future hope is so good, it influences your present. Such that when you're going through hard or difficult circumstances or you encounter tragedy or you're having a setback in your spiritual life or in your personal life, your hope, if it is set on the right thing, Jesus Christ, influences your present. But not only, so hope is not just future-oriented, it influences our present, but as well, it interprets our past. We are given here a royal hope that Jesus will fulfill this 
Scripture. He will be of the line and lineage of David. He will be the ruler people's hearts truly long for. Remember, Israel wanted a king. This is their true king and ours by extension. And so hope has a future orientation, yes, but hope, the Christian's hope is so good. It influences our present and it interprets our past for us as we are able to look back and to trust at the wisdom and the sovereignty of God. Where does this all lead us, this royal hope that we have? 2024 is coming. There will be a vote in 2024. And I want to ask you, I behaved at Thanksgiving, so I get to do this now. I want to ask you, are we going to go through the same insanity we did in 2020? What am I talking about? The fear, the anxiety, that if an election turns out a certain way, and it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, you will be disappointed or experience fear or anxiety to the extent you're not hoping in this royal ruler. 2024 is coming, and you will experience disillusionment, perhaps depression or ecstasy to the same extent that you have placed your hope falsely on the things of this world. We are called, and, and this is not the voice of a Gen X disillusioned uh, with politics generation person. This is me telling you, don't settle for less. Don't settle for a lesser ruler. Our hearts long for, look in verse 7, justice, righteousness, peace. Don't set your heart, your, the sights of your heart on a hope so low as they will be elected at the ballot box. Didn't Israel do that? Didn't they mistake Jesus at times for an earthly ruler? When is your kingdom going to come? Don't make the same mistake. It will lead to fear, anxiety, disillusionment, depression, disappointment. Instead, let those desire, the desires of your heart for a good ruler, for, for ethical leadership at all levels of government in our country, and for our country to be led well, that is a good desire. But the only one who can bear up under this wonderful desire and expectation we have, his name is Jesus Christ. And the good news is, of the increase of his rule, reign, and dominion, there will be no end. Oh, that's good news. No end to the rule and the reign of our Savior. And so if you have set your sights too low, this is your, Christmas is an invitation to repent, to give thanks, to turn your heart and your hope and your expectations on the royal ruler depicted for us here in the scripture. So we have hope. Two reasons we have hope. We have 
First, I showed you we have a wonderful hope, a hope that is full of awe and the magnificence of God's plan. We have a royal hope, and then we have a certain hope. You see, what good is hope if it's only wishful thinking? Isaiah, writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, do you notice the end of verse 7, the last phrase of verse 7, which he tags on to, this wonderful prediction about the Savior. He says this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It is not, I sure hope this works out. I, I, I sure hope we get lucky and this actually happens. No, it is the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Hope is so powerful in our life to hold us together against the cracking. And even when we are cracked and some of us spill out, hope holds us together because that future hope is so good. And what is that future hope? Look with me here at the end of verse 7. It is a hope with a certainty that God will do this, that nothing can stop him. Nothing can thwart his plan. Nothing is powerful enough to stop him from doing this. We read the zeal of the Lord of hosts, so it is the zeal that belongs to the Lord of hosts. Zeal here is a jealous love. It is what, what happens if you're walking in the woods and you stumble upon some cute little grizzly cubs. Who's coming for you? The mama bear. That's a picture of the love that God has for his people, this protective, gracious love. So it is the zeal of the Lord of hosts. And the title here used for the Lord, it, it's, it is his battle name. It's the name of the commander. He's the Lord of his army. So the implication here is that he will force this plan to work out. And he has the arsenal to do so. And we have this assurance, we'll do this. Christianity is not a maybe proposition. It is not even rightly described as a leap of faith. Christianity is not a leap of faith. It is a certain unstoppable confidence in the one who rules and reigns and works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This advent that is looked forward to has already happened. And we look forward to the fullness of his kingdom in the second advent. So I've shown you this morning reasons for hope. The simple gift we've been given is hope. We have a hope in this wonder-filled and awe-inspiring redemptive plan of a sovereign God that no one could conceive of or invent. And we have hope because we have a royal Savior whose rule and reign is increasing and unstoppable. And he rules so much better than anyone will ever elect. And the hope we have is not wishful thinking. It is an absolutely certain guarantee. Let's pray together.